We continue in our series, Grace Principles for Parenting, and the session is on shaping your child's mind in parenting, and I want to look this evening especially at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 3 through 5. We looked last at the importance of shaping your child's heart in parenting, and uh, Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance or diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And we thought about how keeping your heart implies that the heart is worth keeping. It's worth guarding. Uh, To keep your heart with all vigilance or diligence indicates that it's easy to not keep your heart and to lose focus. Uh, For from it flows the springs of life. It's like a bountiful water, water spring, and we want it to flow with good things and with holy things. And we talked about how if we want to shape our child's heart, then we need to display unconditional love, not meaning without boundaries, but within the boundaries of God's word, to invest time in the relationship with our kids and grandkids, uh, to take an interest in them personally because they have a uniqueness about them, about how God designed them, and to speak words of kindness and learn to adjust our methods as our kids grow and as they age and as they mature. We want to keep them close and not get sidetracked just by their behavior, but we want to focus on their hearts so that their hearts are being shaped in the Lord. And this evening as we think about the mind in particular, uh, we're going to think about how to shape the mind and not only the heart. And I read a particularly helpful piece from a man by the name of David Nagel, uh, who wrote on developing a Christian mind and spoke on it more than 20 years ago now. And I want to give credit where credit is due because I'm going to make some reference to some of his work as I go along in this particular session. Um, Forty years ago, a man by the name of Charles Malick spoke at the dedication of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, and he said this. He said, the problem we have is not only to save souls but to save minds. If you win the whole world and lose the mind of the world, you will soon discover you have not won the world. Indeed, it may turn out that you have actually lost the world. The mind is incredibly important. And in part, we have um, come up against a very dark and difficult battle for the mind in our culture. And that's why we're seeing all these things that we're seeing is because the way people are thinking about things is ultimately affecting how they see their own identity, how they see their purpose in the world, and how they see uh, their life with God. So I want to start with this idea. It's important to shape your child's mind in how they think about knowledge and truth. It's important to shape your child's mind in how they think about knowledge and truth. And I want to start with some verses in the Proverbs, and then also include some from the Psalms. Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 2 and verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 18 and verse 15 says, The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, for the ears of the wise seek it out. And then Psalm 119 and verse 66 says, Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. I think a lot of people think about knowledge as mainly information 
or data or facts. And if that's the way we think about knowledge or we limit it to that realm, then thinking becomes a detached process. Now, this is particularly challenging because we live in uh, the information age that is just exploding as we go along. And the scripture has more depth to it than that. It's not just about the body of knowledge because if we think about it in that way, human knowledge, apart from the knowledge of God, is going to end up in a flawed place. Knowledge that is not tempered by love is not really of value. And knowledge without humility can make us proud. Now, I told you I wanted to reference uh, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3 through 5. So I'm going to go ahead and read that kind of as the backdrop of all this. And here's what he says. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments in every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ or to the obedience of Christ. So the context of this scriptural knowledge that we have is not just detached information. It's not just benign facts. It's something more. The basic biblical words for knowledge, which are yada in Hebrew and gnosko in Greek, mean to know by experience. So it includes knowing things like suffering, joy, and peace, and love, and the broad array of experiences we might have in life. And knowledge denotes understanding, recognizing, and acknowledging something that is true. So we got to perceive or to have an awareness of something that in fact corresponds with reality. And knowledge of God is the most valuable knowledge that a human being can possess. The knowledge of God includes a relationship with God. So in that sense, it is a gift from God. And James adds in his writing that if we lack wisdom, we only have to ask God and he'll give it to us. So God wants us to know and God wants us to appreciate the ability to apply knowledge with the use of wisdom. Now, science has come a long way in understanding how the human body works. But it's really fascinating that it's so difficult to understand the brain. Um, I would say, from what I've read, that the understanding of the human brain is still sort of at a pioneering stage. Uh, God's marvelous creation is still a mystery. So when the question is asked of neuroscience, how does the brain work, neuroscience can give us the basic framework of it, but yet there's still that a lot that we don't know. They can identify brain regions that um, identify with the environment or activate our senses or generate our movements or our emotions, but we really don't understand how these interactions contribute to behavior or to perception or to memory. And the Stanford neurologist, Carice Lickman, uh, offered a picture to clarify the problem. And here's the, way, here's the way the neurologist put it. But if I asked, do you understand New York City? You would probably respond, what do you mean? There's all this complexity. If you can't understand New York City, it's not because you can't get access to the data. It's just there's so much going on at the same time. And that's how the human brain is. 
It's millions of things happening simultaneously among different types of cells, neuromodulators, genetic components, things from the outside. There's no point when you can suddenly say, I now understand the brain, just as you wouldn't say, I now fully understand New York City. There's a complexity about this thing, and when we talk about the understanding of knowledge and truth, we have to acknowledge that. But knowledge ultimately is an encounter with reality or it is an encounter with that which is in existence. So spiritually, it means an in-depth encounter with God, who is our maker, our creator, and it's an in-depth encounter with his creation, uh, natural, social, cultural. Uh, knowledge in that sense is concrete, it's personal, it's real, and it's meaningful. The Old Testament word for truth means firmness, constancy, or duration. It means an everlasting substance and something that can be relied upon. The New Testament word for truth literally means to unhide something or hiding nothing, if you will. Truth is always there. It's available. It's out in the open for us to see with nothing hidden or obscured. And we come up against this worldview, the philosophy of relativism, that says all truth is relative and there is nothing that exists that is absolute truth. Truth is whatever works. But biblically, pragmatism does not define truth. Truth is not whatever makes us feel good. Truth is not determined by the majority. Uh, truth is not whatever I believe. I can believe a lie. You're perfectly capable of believing a lie. We believe lies all the time that we have to guard ourselves against. So how do we understand it? If we want to shape our kids' minds and our grandkids' minds with knowledge and truth, how do we help do that? Well, we start with the idea that God is the embodiment of truth in his character. He's the one who defines what truth is. And in that, I would say that the most important thing about God is that he is holy in every regard. He's all these other things we're going to look at as well, but he is, he is holy. And we know what we know about God because God is the self-revealing God. He's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in his word. He's revealed himself in his son. And we know what we know because God has revealed it to us. So ultimately, truth is that which corresponds to the reality of God. Knowledge is what comes from the reality of who God is. And that leads me to my second point. Shape your child's mind in how they think about God. So now I started with knowledge of truth, not because God is not the first thing that we should be thinking about, but I started with knowledge and truth because I wanted to say how we think about reality and ultimate things is going to determine how we think about God. And it's important that we shape our child's mind and our grandkids' minds in how they think about God. Uh, Timothy Jennings is a medical doctor, and he wrote a book entitled The God-Shaped Brain, How Changing Your View of God Transforms Your Life. And here's what he said in part. Brain research in neuroscience has found that our thoughts and beliefs affect our physical, mental, and spiritual health. Mind and body are interrelated, and we are designed for healthy relationships of love and trust. When we understand God as good and loving, we flourish. 
unfortunately, many of us have distorted images of God, and many of us think of him in fearful and punitive ways. This leads us into unhealthy patterns of self-defeating behavior and even toxic relationships. But our lives can change when God renews our minds with a truer picture of him. The psychiatrist Tim Jennings unveils how our brains and our bodies thrive when we have a healthy understanding of God and of who he is. And he dispels common misconceptions about God and how different God concepts actually affect our brains differently. So here's the question that is always before us. How do we think about God? How do we think about God? A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He said the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than what its idea of God is. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So Tozer says, for this reason, the most grave question before the church is always God himself. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And A.W. Tozer wrote that in the knowledge of the holy. And then there's another quote I thought was just really good along these lines from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory. And he said, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but even infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him relates to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him and we shall appear and be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, and shall please God. To be loved by God is what's most important, the burden of glory, and so it is. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. So now why do I bring all that up? Because it is of immense importance who and what we think God really is. And your view of God is what you're teaching your children. They get their concept of who God is from what they're learning from you. So what are some things that we think about God and how does this relate to our children and our families? Well, certainly God is omnipotent. And when we say God is omnipotent, we mean that God does whatever he is pleased to do that is consistent with his character. Psalm 115 in verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven and he does what he pleases. So we say that God is omnipotent or that he has all power. It means that God has control over everything and God has control even over the small details of life. And the application of this is God has the power to meet us at our point of need and he's going to do what he pleases that is best for us for our good and for his glory. So we're constantly bringing our kids back to that view. Listen, God is able. God's not weak. He, he, he's not insufficient. He's able. 
So whatever problem you're facing, whatever decision you're making, whatever direction you're going in, God is the one who is omnipotent over all. God is also omniscient. He knows all that there is to know, and he knows it all at once. Psalm 147 and verse 5 says, Our Lord is great. He is vast in power, and his understanding is infinite. He knows everything that there is to know about us, and yet he still loves us. And if you teach your kids that God is to be feared in terms of being respected, but yet God is near to us, the one who knows us the best and yet loves us the most, that's going to impact how they think about God. God is omnipresent in that he is in every place and every time, and he is with us. And that means that if God is with us, then we need to live in such a way that honors him because there's to be no agreement between God's sanctuary and idols, according to 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16. So let's put these together. God's the creator of all there is. He's our holy father. He loves us with an everlasting love. We know God through faith in God the Son, who is our Savior, and we are empowered to live for him uh, through the presence of God the Spirit. And when we see God in this all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present way, that's going to lessen our anxiety. It's going to lower our fear. It's going to raise our confidence. And it's going to increase our peace. And if we're living with that type of mindset in our homes, it's going to make a difference in the way that we parent. It's going to encourage our kids to see God in a way that he is close and he is caring. So here's the question that arises. Does God care about me? The answer is yes, but you want your kids to believe that God cares about them. Is God near me? The answer is yes, but you want your kids to believe that God is near them. Does God have a plan for my life? Well, if he's omnipotent and he's over all things and he does as he pleases, and he acts according to his character, the answer is yes. God has a plan for me within what he's doing as well. And I think one of the things that we've seen is the the epidemic of discouragement and despair that has brought many people to some very dark places. And part of that, at least, is that they don't believe that anybody cares about them. They don't believe that they have a place in the world, or they don't know what their place in the world is. And when you see your worth and you believe that God has the power to help you, that changes everything. It puts you in a different frame of mind, a frame of thinking, and it puts you in a different direction in life. The next point I want to make is that it's important to shape your child's mind in how they think about others and relating to others in the world. So now notice the progression here. We're moving from this basic concept of what is knowledge, what is truth. It's that which corresponds to reality and ultimately that which corresponds to God. And we have the wisdom from God that he's promised to give us generously in order to apply that knowledge and truth. The word of God is truth. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of truth. And then 
how we think about God is informed by these things because we believe that the word is the foundation of knowledge and truth. So now our concept of God as the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God is, who is near to us, cares about us, and is capable of helping us, that's our view of who God is. So he can be trusted even if we don't understand the moment that we're living in or the circumstance that we're facing. Now, how does this apply to how we think about others in the world and relating to them? So let me tie the pieces together. I think knowledge involves the whole person. And people are created in God's image and likeness with the heart at the core. We made reference to the heart last week, and the word uh, referencing the heart is used hundreds of times in the Bible as the seat or the source of knowledge, affections, and the will. It's where we think, feel, and choose. There's a wholeness to the inner life in the way that a person possesses that knowledge. So someone said what we know affects what we love, and what we love affects what we know and do, and what we do affects what we know and love. So in other words, it just all fits together. Because what we're thinking about is what's important to us. That's our concept. But then that affects the decisions that we make, which involves the things that we do. And then that impacts, ultimately, what we love. Knowledge, character, and morality are all intertwined in the heart. How you think about what you know and what your kids think about what they know and what they believe is true and what their God concept is, is going to affect their morality and the ethical implications of their lives. So they're going to think basically about certain things in life like who really does have it good in life? What is really important? What should I be investing my life and my energies in? And our contemporary culture has various answers to this question. Uh, Some think that those who are really well off are those who are immersed in the sensual experiences, whether it be the pleasures of, of life that they're drawn to or maybe those that are have the most financial resources and they're on top of the world uh, as it is. Or maybe people think that those who really have it good in life are those who have the highest achievements among other people or maybe fame. You know, we're living in an age where you can just be famous for being famous. You don't have to do anything. You're just famous for being famous. You just do something that puts you out there and then all of a sudden you're famous. I mean, it's it's a wild world that we live in today. And you need not think that your kids are not just immersed in that stuff. The media is immersing them in it. And their worldviews being impacted by it. And if we're not pushing back against that and fighting against those, those uh, strongholds, then they're going to be captured by it uh, rather than being delivered from it. And when it comes to, to the very best way to live your life, the Bible suggests something altogether different. A Christian mind sees the person who is really well off as the person who is focused on God, who is living their life on purpose for God, going in the direction that God wants them to go. Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century explained and defended the supremacy of what he called the virtue of love in a little book that he wrote on charity and its fruits. And he did an exposition of 1 Corinthians 13 
And he said, the virtue that is saving and that distinguishes true Christians from others is summed up in Christian love. He said, the greatest of all the gifts is love. So who has it the best in the world? The person who is living life with God. The person who cares about their neighbor. Love God. Love neighbor as yourself. And I think there are some practical suggestions of how we can apply this um, to our lives. And this in part, how, how do we shape this mind? If, if we get a good vision of knowledge and truth, we get a good vision of who God is, and now uh, we get a good vision of others and how to relate to them in the world, now how do we apply this as far as shaping our minds and living this out in the world? Now, I'm going to go back now to the early reference I made um, to the source uh, of, of the book that I mentioned, and I want to talk about a few things that, that he references in that particular writing and that presentation that he made that I think will help us really think about how to apply this. He starts, first of all, in terms of shaping the mind and applying these things just in everyday life, he starts with what he calls the vision factor. And in the vision factor, he said, we've got to have a vision of the importance of shaping the Christian mind. And we've got to have a, a vision of the importance of shaping the minds of our kids. Now, I know you already know this, but I'm going to state the obvious. Our kids' minds are being shaped. That's not the question. The question is, who's shaping them? Are they being shaped by culture? Are they being shaped by peers? Are they being shaped by unbiblical strongholds? Are they being shaped by their own sins and temptations or their own identity issues? What, what are they being shaped by? Or are they being shaped by God and his word? So we've got to have vision for that, that we want to help people think well. And it's not just implementing some type of formal system within your kids to try to, try to shape their thinking. That's really not ultimately what's going to happen. It's going to practically happen in the give and take of life where you're asking good questions. You're talking about the issues of the day. You're helping them process and think through things. And you, it, you're challenging unbiblical thinking. And you're giving them a, a, a vision of, of really how, it, how they can think in a biblical type of way, in a way that honors God. You've got to have a vision for it. And I think a lot of parents are just asleep at the wheel. I, I really think they are. They're just letting their kids go along and get along. They think, well, that's just the phase they're in. That's the age they are. Those are the things that they're thinking. And in, in that sense, we lose a lot of kids and we lose a lot of families because they never prepare themselves to think biblically. Then he mentions the mentor factor. And he said, if we want to develop a Christian mind, then parents must have a Christian mind as the absolute necessary prerequisite. You cannot impart to others what you do not possess yourself. So here's the implication. If we are not actively engaged in developing our minds and thinking through things in a biblical way that honors God, we can't expect that our kids are going to do that. They're going to go a step further if we're not giving them something to follow in terms of the mentor factor. And then he mentions the community factor. And he says Christian mind formation is not just an individual matter. It is a community affair. Uh, the power of communities to shape human lives and attitudes and actions is overwhelming. 
And I want to apply this particular point to the church. And if church, and I know I'm speaking, I mean, this is like the core of the core. This is like the heart of the church is here in the session this evening. But if church is just something we just add on to our lives, it's going to have a limited effect. If, if Christ is not center, center of our lives and if we're not submitting every thought to captivity, to the obedience of, of the mind of Christ, then we're not going to have the effect that we want to have. And I, I know I've kind of been on a, on a track lately, uh, recent months, talking about cultural Christianity and consumer Christianity and the things that go along with that. But this is so true because even the, this time frame that we've gone through in the last couple of years, friends, it's been a winnowing factor. It's been a purification factor in some regard because we found out uh, where people are spiritually in many regards um, and what's expendable to them. And uh, even the circumstance that we're in now, as we've come through these last months and some of the difficulty of coming out of the pandemic and everything, um, there's a whole lot of people that return to life, but they didn't return to worship of the Lord. They didn't. It's a fact. Not just our church, a lot of churches. And what does that say? It says that that aspect of their lives was not central. It was secondary. And what was secondary became expendable. And what was expendable will become non-existent eventually, if not immediately. And these are very important issues. Proverbs 13 and verse 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise but the companion of fools will suffer. And then 1 Corinthians 15, says, bad company corrupts good morals. And then, of course, conversely, good company cultivates good morals. Um, one of the things that I've been grateful for in this winnowing season that we've, we've experienced, and, you know, time will tell uh, what the ultimate result of it is. One of the things that I've been thankful for is just how tightly the core of our church, for example, has returned. And I've seen very much an evidence of a sincerity of the faith and a desire to grow and a desire to be together and a desire to, to, to honor the Lord with our lives. And, and I think God's going to work with that core in so many churches, uh, the people who are investing in the work and they're involved with their time and their efforts and their spiritual gifts. God's going to use that core and he's going to rebuild from that core. Um, but it's going to take some time. But that's encouraged me, and that tells me just how important the community of the church really is. It, it has to be central to our lives and, and not something that's just a convenience. Then he speaks of the discipline factor, and he says, as Paul says in, in, uh, uh, in the book of Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Um, he said we've got to set the culture of mass distraction aside and commit ourselves to the task of actually reading and studying and praying and writing and thinking and applying. And God, the Holy Spirit helps us to do that. You, you got to apply yourself. Like we have food set in front of us, but you got to, you got to eat it on your own eventually. And that's the way discipleship is. The, the table can be set, but we've got to want it. And there's got to be a discipline factor for us to do that. And that starts with us. So if you want your kids to walk with God, you've got to walk with God and, and give them an example of how to do that. 
you've you got to get them among the family of God and be consistent in that. Not, not expendable, but like this is the priority of, of your family and of your home. And if you'll do that, these pieces can work together. And is it a guaranteed formula for success? No. But going in the other direction is almost a guaranteed formula for failure. So what's your alternative? And then finally, um, he speaks of the prayer factor. He says, undergirding the whole process of Christian mind formation, and perhaps most important of all, is prayer. Humbly going before the Father and believing that he wants us to have a mind that is shaped for him. That we're praying that God will form in us the very mind of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit so that we can understand what kind of view he wants us to live by and what kind of worldview uh, he wants us uh, to develop. And I think that's so important. By way of illustration, there's a film uh, called A Beautiful Mind, and uh, John Nash's psychiatrist, Dr. Rosen, told him the problem, he said, is your mind. When he said that to Nash, he really spoke uh, probably for a lot of people in that the problem is our minds. And for various reasons, to greater or lesser extent, um, our minds can get us in a lot of trouble or our minds can focus us and move us in the right direction. And we want to apply these principles to our lives so that our families might have an opportunity to follow. So let me give you just a few things before I close out uh, this session. Pray for the minds of your children and your grandchildren. There's nothing more important than you can, that you can do than to pray for their minds. Pray that their minds will be open to knowledge and truth. Pray that their minds would have a right view of who God is from the Bible. Pray that their minds would be able to defend against falsehood and evil and things that are contrary to the character and the image and the nature of God. Pray that God would bring good people around them who also are thinking rightly that would encourage them and help lift them up and help them process things. Just pray, pray for their minds and while you're doing it, pray for your own mind. Teach your children a biblical worldview. Um, I cannot overemphasize this because everybody has a worldview. When you think about a worldview, a worldview is the lenses through which you look at life. And in the relativism that I mentioned earlier, people view the world in a lot of different ways. But the problem is, much of our current culture is viewing the world the way they want to view the world rather than the way God views the world. And if you don't believe in the authority of Scripture, then anything goes. If you're smarter than God is and you're smarter than His Word is and you sit in judgment on the Word rather than the Word applying to your life, then you can pretty much twist it and make it fit anything you want it to fit and end up in an unbiblical place. Teach your kids a biblical worldview. And I would say very importantly, challenge unbiblical ways of thinking. I want to bring this back together with the idea of what I told you about unconditional love. Unconditional love does not mean that we lay aside the boundaries that God has given us in his word. That's not what it means. 
it means that we love the person even if we don't go along with whatever the action or the path of life is at the moment or even perpetually we still love the person but we are not affirming what they are doing that is just blatantly unbiblical that's not unconditional love that that's that's loving falsehood and we need to be willing to challenge unbiblical ways of thinking as Christians because God has given us his word and if we believe it then then there are some implications of that in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16 the Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah 40 and verse 13 and he says for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ we have the mind of Christ having the mind of Christ means that we share in the perspective of Christ the plan of Christ and it's something that we all have if we're Christians if we are Christians we have the mind of Christ why do we have the mind of Christ we have the mind of Christ because we have the Spirit of God indwelling us in the role of the Spirit of God is to magnify Jesus Christ and Jesus said it's even better that he would go away because he would send the Spirit to dwell within us this whole area of thinking is critically important because what you think informs what you do and what you do reveals what you love and what you love affects how you think and it just all goes together and you can't pull it out and separate it it fits together let's bow our heads together as we pray God I'm thankful tonight that you've given us the ability to think our minds are a real battlefield if we give up our thinking and um, we condone and affirm and support unbiblical ways of thinking it puts us on a path of decline and a path that distances us from you and we don't want to be distanced from you so help us to have the mind of Christ you've given that to us as a gift but having it in terms of actually applying it to our lives we pray for our kids and our grandkids because they are in a spiritual war they're being told things that are untrue are to be held as truths they're being told that their truth is truth and God, we know all these things come from that spiritual enemy. Jesus said he's, he's a liar. He, he's the father of lies. And we know this is the level of the battle that we're engaged in. So help us not to get pulled into that and to, to acquiesce to it and to think that things that are okay that aren't and things that are unholy are, are, are holy. And we pray your protection for our kids and our grandkids. And we pray that we would be able to build homes where a biblical worldview guides us, Lord, in, a, in an imperfect way, but in a way that honors you all the same. And I pray that we'd be willing to challenge unbiblical ways of thinking, both in our own kids and uh, in our discipleship process in the church. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. That even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. 
And for that, we're so grateful. I pray, Father, that you would bless us as we shape the minds and the hearts of our families. And we pray with faith and anticipation that there would be spiritual fruit that would be borne out from that. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.